Well, we are in week five, part five of our series through the book of Joshua called 31 Kings. And uh, so we've been in the series for a while, and, and I want to just kind of give you a chance to, to ramp back up to where we are today, because what this story is about, and if you're, again, if you're new or newer here, and, and to get a sense for where we are, this book of Joshua that we're looking at uh, for these past several weeks is about the story of God's people taking the promised land, a land that God had promised them, hence it was called the promised land, and uh, them now conquering this land. But there's been a problem with this problem, promised land. And it's that it's inhabited by 31 kings who are ruling 31 cities that are strongholds in this land. And so the book of Joshua tells us the story of how God's people crossed over the Jordan and into this land and ultimately taking this land. And so we began in, in, in week one, which is really foundational for our whole series and keeps coming through each and every week. It's that God told Joshua, even before they began this battle, before they take this promised land, he said these important things. He said, Joshua... What did he say? Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He needed that promise before they ever began to take the land. And as we've been talking about over these several weeks, it's not just some story that we're listening to in the past. This is important for us as we think about our lives and our hearts and the territory and the promises that God has for us. This promise in Scripture that says, I've come to give you life to the fullest. How do we experience that full life? And so the Israelites wanted to experience this land and receive these promises. They crossed through the Jordan in a miraculous way and knew they needed to trust God in these spiritual battles. They come upon this fortified, walled city of Jericho. In a miraculous way, as they trust God, they march around that city and the walls come crumbling down. They go into that city, they conquer that king, and now they have a, a foothold in the promised land. And then last week, we talked about the importance of little battles that we face when they faced the armies and the city of Ai and the king, the small little town, and they lost. And remember, partly what we, what we looked at was this importance of the reason they lost is they didn't commit everything at Jericho. And we learned this important principle, the first and the best belongs to God. The first and the best belongs to God. And it's not only important for the first and best, but the blessing of the rest hinges on the first and best. And so as, as the Israelites moved into the promised land and they committed the first and the best of what they had in the city of Jericho and I, now we look at the rest. And today, I want to look at the rest. What happens in the rest? How do we take the whole land? Now, we have taken four weeks to look at chapters 1 through 8. And today, we're going to look at chapters 9 through 22. That's 13 chapters. You guys ready for a marathon? We're going to be here till how much? How long you guys got? Give me a couple hours. There's a lot of chapters going on. No, we'll move through these pretty quick. But I want to look at some important things. We're actually going to divide the message into two parts. And, and the first part that I want to talk about is, well, I'm going to get to the part about the kings and, and the importance of taking the rest of the land. But the first part that I want to look at today is something that I think we need to talk about as we're looking at this book and as we're looking at the story of Joshua. If you've taken the time to read Joshua yourself, You'll see that I've left out some parts as I've been teaching because they're really quite difficult to deal with. And I didn't leave them out because they're difficult to deal with, but just it's not the kinds of things that you typically want to talk about on a Sunday morning because the reality is that Joshua is a pretty brutal book. If you read through the whole story of Joshua, you read all the passages, you see that they're going into this land and they've been told to take out the entire city, to annihilate, to burn it to the ground, to kill everyone, men, women, and children. 
And we see this in our book and in, in the Bible, and we look and we go, man, I'd just rather not deal with that. I mean, let's just kind of ignore that part. Or we wrestle with it and we go, what do we do with this? How do we reconcile this brutality, this total you know, taking of cities and nations? How do we reconcile that today? And especially in light of the events even of this past week, the tension in our world that we deal with with terrorism and, and nation states warring against each other, how do we reconcile this, that, th- these passages in our scriptures? And so I want to talk a little bit about that today because I think we need to look for at least some handles. I don't know that I will give you, I'm pretty confident I'm not going to give you answers this morning that are going to satisfy you where you just go, oh, okay, that makes sense now. Because the reality is it's still hard to deal with. But I'm hopeful that maybe a couple things that we mention and talk about will be a basis of discussion, something that you can look at at Scripture and wrestle with and grapple with and try to understand God and his plan a little bit better. So let me look at a few of these things um, as we try to reconcile this uh, brutality and violence in Joshua with a loving God. Now, one approach we could have, and some people subscribe to this and even some scholars subscribe to this, they say, these events didn't really happen. If that's true, then boy, then we're all just kind of off the hook. These things didn't really happen. Maybe this just legend, it's myth, there's war stories that were passed along and maybe exaggerated over time, but maybe the events of this, this book didn't even really happen. And maybe if they, they, they happened in part, but now have just become myth and legend, it allows us to just sort of easily deal with this question and kind of put it to rest, because then we just dig in and kind of go, okay, well, what can we learn from it? But we do run into a problem when we do that, because when you start picking and choosing which parts of Scripture you want to say are, are myth and are true, which, what's a miracle and what's not a miracle, and what happened and what really didn't happen, you begin to deteriorate the confidence in the Word of God that is truth and that, it's, that it has the power for our lives. And so let's not take that route this morning. If you do take that route and that's how, where you land... I don't think it's a salvation issue. I think we can still be in church together, and I think we can still have dialogue together. But let's look at some other ways that we can reconcile this, because it's hard. It's hard if you're going to accept this um, as fact that these things happen. How do we understand that? So if we're not going to write it off as myth or legend, one of the important things that we always need to do when when we read Scripture is we have to consider the context. Now, there's two contexts that we need to consider. The first context, which means the larger picture in and around what is happening, is the larger context of Scripture. If Joshua was the only book that we had, and that was our Bible, oh boy, (laughs) that could be dangerous, right? Hey, this is what God says, this is how we need to do it, this is what happens, and it'd it'd be dangerous. And so to build an entire theology on one book or one passage is not the way to go. We need to look at all of Scripture, and if we read the whole scope of Scripture from end to end, it's, it's actually the reason we wrestle with this. Because the, the Judeo-Christian understanding of God is that he is a loving God. He's a merciful God. He's a forgiving God. A God of grace. Where do we get these ideas from? The Bible. God's very book teaches us those understandings of God. And sometimes we want to say, well, that's the New Testament God is all those things. But the Old Testament God, he's the God of vengeance. You know, that's where all that stuff happens. Well, that's true. There's some of those things that are definitely happening more so in the Old Testament. But even in the Old Testament, God is a loving God. God is a forgiving God. God is a patient God. God cares for the orphans, cares for those that are, that are in need. And he has patience. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. And so we really see that we have to look at the whole of Scripture to really get a better picture of what's all happening here. So that's one context. And the other context that we need to look at is the time period in which these events actually took place. And the time period when this book was was written and read. 
Apparently, the cultures of that time had no issue with taking this book and having that be part of their scripture, part of their story. Because during that time, war was just, quite frankly, very brutal. I think war is always brutal in very different ways, but in, the, in that time, you either, when you went to war, you went and you annihilated the other cities. You took out, it was an all or nothing option, or you would enslave those whom you took captive. And so it was an environment that this was in that was different than the way that we look at war today, where we send a smart bomb or a drone and, and it seems to be a little less violent to those of us that aren't on the receiving end of that. But it's different. It feels different. And so we have to understand the context there. But even in that context where it was an all-or-nothing situation, we read parts in this Joshua story where it seems as though the people were given an opportunity to leave. Part of the instruction was to drive them out. Although some instructions came that said, you know, wipe them out, the other parts say also to drive them out as though if they were to have left, then they would have had an opportunity to, to escape that. So when we look at this context, all of Scripture, and understand that God is both loving and just, God is also the creator of space and time. He's the one that gives life. He's the one that takes life away. How do we continue to look at this? Well, God was establishing in the promised land his nation. And he was establishing his people, and he was establishing their worship. And this word set apart comes out all throughout Joshua. And it's a word that we also see all throughout Scripture that means holy, to be set apart. God's people were to be set apart. There were all kinds of laws and customs that were intended to keep from intermingling. Because what happens when we begin to intermingle is you begin to dilute the truths. And so there were reminders of that. Such trivial, what seems to us trivial laws and regulations in their code, such as not to wear blended fabrics. A lot of us would be guilty right now of blended woven fabrics. And, and, and we think, why was that? Well, God was trying to tell them the importance of being reminded even in daily life that you are set apart and that you should remember God and that you are to be holy. And he also had regulations about intermarrying and intermixing and mixing worship practices from idols. And God was always very strong on that because he wanted to protect the purity of that worship and preserve that nation as a founding piece for what God was trying to build. Now, if we look at the promised land, nowhere else in Scripture do we read another situation where God is telling people to take out entire cities and kings and nations. This seems to be a one-time thing and not something that can become prescriptive beyond this because God was establishing in this moment a nation. Now, that doesn't, again, make this necessarily easy to understand or just to go, oh, okay, that was it, but it helps give us some understanding. Now, the punishment for sin is death. Clearly throughout all of the Old Testament, even throughout the New Testament, the punishment for sin is death. That's why Jesus Christ is so important for us as followers of Christ. He took that punishment. But prior to that, the only way to reconcile the holiness of God was the, the just of justice of God was death. And in this situation, the Canaanites were being punished. And the punishment was death. Now, what's difficult in this situation is that instead of using a flood or an angel or other things, as God did in other times through Scripture to punish, he used other people. He used the Israelites, the people of God, at the hand of war. And yet, we think about war in our day and age when, when a soldier just goes out on his own, if he's not acting on behalf of the government or the military, and kills someone, it's murder, right? Right? But if that same soldier does that while he's, an, while he's a soldier serving a military and a commander, 
he may even be hailed as a hero. And so in this situation, the Israelites are acting as agents for God under his authority. Again, doesn't make it easy for us to answer this question and to reconcile it, but it helps us understand this, that this was a way that he was enacting the punishment. Now, you, you have to be careful of this because you start saying, well, what if, what if some people just kind of go today and we go, hey, God told us to go wipe out another nation. He did it in Joshua. We do it today. We're agents of God's punishment. We execute this punishment. Well, what I find interesting is it wasn't just a one-way thing. You see, in the Old Testament, God also used other nations to exact his punishment on the people of God. You know, in the stories that follow after they were in the promised land, when the people strayed, when the people of God strayed, he sent punishment that came at the hands of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. These nations did not worship God, and they came out, and God used them to take them away into captivity and into exile. And so we see playing out through the Old Testament that sometimes God uses nations to to work out his plan and to exact his, his punishment. But then you still go, but, but the children, the women, the children. I mean, it's one thing if it's soldiers, but how do you deal with the children? And this is the hardest part of this whole thing. Because I don't think any way that we spin this and say this, it, it, it makes us go, oh, okay. But as I was trying to study and figure out, okay, how, where, what are people saying about this and scholars? And one thing they're saying is, well, God gave opportunity, first of all, for some of these nations to, to turn but what about the children? They didn't have that chance. And he's saying it was actually one of the least cruel ways to deal with the children in these brutal societies of war. Because instead of growing up without parents, instead of growing up in another culture, instead of growing up as slaves, in some ways, this was their salvation. At the hands of a sword, swift. And some would say, well, in in the perspective of God's authority, these children were considered innocent, and so in a moment, receive their eternal reward in heaven. Does this make me feel better about this? No, it doesn't. But I'm trying to understand this, and I'm trying to encourage the conversation. And as I said earlier, God is the giver and taker of life, and none of us can demand of God that we deserve one extra second. And there are times where we just go, God, I surrender to your sovereignty in this, and try to help me understand But is God this God that gives these swift punishments, that just, you anger him a little bit in the Old Testament, whop, death. Sometimes that's how we see or think the Old Testament is, but it's actually not true. If you look at Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, it says this, I am the Lord. I am the Lord, the merciful and gracious God. I'm slow to anger and rich in unfailing love and faithfulness. This is Exodus. This is the Old Testament. Sometimes it says that God is long-suffering, which means God is patient. He's willing to put up with a lot. And some say that he's put up for 400 years to let the Canaanites turn and to worship him, but they didn't do that. And he gave them another 40 years while the Israelites wandered through the desert. They had heard the power of God and how he conquered the most mighty nation, Egypt, and Pharaoh at its head. They had time to turn, but God's timing ran out. Ezekiel 33.11 says this, As surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? Makes me think of the New Testament. John 3.16, but then also 3.17, that says, God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. 
The desire of God is to rescue, is to save, is to redeem. And he gives lots of opportunity, long-suffering patience for people to turn to him. And we even saw it in, in the battle of Jericho when Rahab, the prostitute, she, she acknowledged God as Savior. She acknowledged his power and she asked for mercy and she asked for her family and her people to be saved. And they were. They were saved and nations that, that you know, created treaties with Israel were spared. And so there was opportunity for being spared. And even with, with Rahab, how cool that she becomes part of Jesus' lineage. Out of her line comes King David and ultimately comes Jesus. And we see that even redemption in the midst of this was possible and was there. And then we come together and we think about how do we reconcile again justice and righteousness of God with his mercy and his grace. And this was brings us to the foundation of our faith, what we just celebrated as we took communion together. It's met in Jesus Christ, that that price was paid through none other than God's own son, through Jesus Christ. And those two pieces are reconciled in that act. Now, just as a, a big picture way, when we read scripture, what helps me as I approach difficult, difficult passages as I approach stories that sometimes I go, man, did that really happen? The Garden of Eden, is that just a story or is that myth? Is that instructive? What Did that really happen? Or, or did, was Jonah really swallowed by a big fish? Did the sun really stand still in these scriptures you know, that we read where there was a battle going on? And, and, and what do we do with tough passages? How do we read scripture? What helps me a lot is, is first we often approach scripture and when we read it, we read about the what and the how. So at a surface reading, you go through and you go, what happened, how did it happen? Garden of Eden, what happened, how did it happen? Joshua, what happened, how did it happen? If you stop at the what and how reading of Scripture, you end up trying to translate that into your own life, going, okay, if that's what happened, how it happened, then apparently this is what we must do today. But it falls short. It's a beginning point. Scripture wasn't just written to be a what and a how book. The more important question, I think, that leads us deeper into truth is the who and the why question. Not just what and how, but who and why. Who is the God behind these stories and behind these edicts and these commands and these life changes? Why are these things happening? And when we get at the who and the why, that begins to open our hearts and minds to a deeper understanding of what God is trying to teach us through his word. It's not that the what and how are irrelevant. They're important. They're a starting point. But we need to go deeper to the who and the why. And so that's what I want to do now as we continue on in Joshua. I know these answers and maybe some of these pieces don't fully satisfy, but I hope it stimulates some thinking and maybe some discussion that you can continue to have as you wrestle through some of these difficult passages, uh, especially in the book of Joshua and throughout the Old Testament. But now, as we move into chapters 9 through 22, out of these 13 chapters, what do we understand? What's the who and the why that we understand out of this passage? I pulled two verses together that is all we're going to look at from these 13 chapters, um, verse, uh, Joshua 11:23 and 12:24. Here's what it says. So Joshua took control of the entire land, just as the Lord had instructed Moses. And he gave it to the people of Israel as their special possession, dividing the land among the tribes. So the land finally had rest from war. In all, 31 kings and their cities were destroyed. In these, nine, in these 13 chapters, 9 through 22, we actually have the kings identified. The kings are named and the cities are named and the battles are, are there to see who were these kings that, that were defeated. And then the land was divided out throughout these, throughout, uh, to the people of Israel by tribe. 
And that's really what this whole chapter constitutes. But, but the pieces that I want to pull out of this here is, is just this idea that Joshua took the entire land, took control of the entire land. All 31 kings and cities were destroyed. And then it says there was rest from war. Even as this book began, the idea of a promised land was that God was providing a place of rest for his people. And isn't that what we still long for today, a place of rest in a world that's chaotic, in a life that's chaotic, in our spiritual and emotional and, and in, you know, physical being? We long for that rest. And God was saying, here, this is a place of rest for you. But we see it's an all-or-nothing proposition. You take the entire land. I'm giving you the promise. Now take hold of the whole promise. Not just part of the promise. Not just, okay, we got Jericho and we got I. We're good now. Let's leave the rest. Take hold of the whole promise. And this describes our battle too. When we think about our lives, we may not be fighting physical kings, but each of us faces similar battles in our own lives. We want to experience that promise. God, give me life to the fullest. I want that, but you know what? There are kings in our way, aren't there? There are pieces that are keeping us from experiencing the fullness of what God has for us because the thief is there to steal, kill, and destroy. And he is that king. He are those kings that we need to take out that are standing in our way. And it can be so frustrating as followers of Christ. It can be really hard. Those of us that have given our lives to Christ, we say, I have given my life to Christ, and, and yet I'm still fighting these challenges. In a couple of weeks here, we're going to have baptism. And some of you, it's your time. It's your time to be baptized. You've, you've surrendered your life to Christ, and yet you need to take that step. Maybe you need to overcome that fear of, of being baptized because what I love about baptism, it's not just that we send you up here and put a little, you know, take an eyedropper and drop it on your head and go, you're good, move it along, you're good, move it on. It's an all-in, all-or-nothing, fully submerged, soaking wet, I am fully in for Jesus. No area of my life, God, you cannot speak into. I withhold you nothing, God. And when I get baptized, I go under the water to symbolize my, my connection to the death and resurrection of Christ, that he died for my sins and I align myself with Jesus. And as I come out, I'm washed clean of my sins and I'm raised to new life. God, every part of my life belongs to you. And so we start as believers with this hope and this excitement that, that we are now with God, like, like the Israelites crossing Jordan. They went through that Jordan River. It was like their baptism before heading into the promise of God. And interestingly enough, Jesus was baptized in that same Jordan River, wasn't he? Baptism is like our entry into this promise that God has for us. And it's so easy for us to think, well, we've been baptized. I'm a follower of Christ now. Man, my life from here on out is smooth sailing. The entire promised land is mine. That the, the challenges that I had before are now swept away. I used to be broke before I was baptized, and I came out of the water, and I looked at my bank account, and there was $1,000. It's amazing. I was sick before I went into the baptism, and I came out, and my sinuses were clear. I'm never going to be sick again. Every relationship I have is going well. I didn't get the job before, but now I got baptized. I get a job. Is that how it happens? No, <laughs> not at all. Because just like the people of Israel when they cross the Jordan, when we go through baptism, when we begin our journey with God, those same kings that have threatened us before are still there. Now God can miraculously take away an addiction, but the chances are the same addiction you had before being baptized is still there afterward. But now you've got the resources, now you've got the power to fight that. And so we have these kings that stand in our way, these strongholds, and, and sometimes we feel that frustration like Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, he says, since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Isn't that the frustration? 
We want to be followers of Christ, and yet sin continues to be a part of our lives, and we go, how do I deal with this? Paul said, I do the things I don't want to do. And I'm, what a wretched man I am. How do I get a hold of this life? How do I have victory over these things? Well, just like in Joshua, we need to name the kings that we face. Because these are strongholds in our life. These are these, are these foundations from which Satan wants to, to launch an attack. And if we don't identify them, we can't fight them. Or we're just burying our head under the sand and choosing to ignore it. And we will never experience all that God has for us right now. I want us to take a moment right now. And I want you to name that king. Name that king. Name that stronghold, that city, that walled city that is facing you down, that is staring you down, that you've tried to run into and you just smack your head against the wall. You've tried to run from it. You thought you may be taking it out, but you've left the king. Who, what is it that keeps coming back to try to get you? Where Satan launches his attacks. I'm going to go through a few things here, and I want you to seriously just put a name to it. What is it for you? We all face a king. Maybe it is addictions. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's eating, food. Maybe it's pornography. I'm sure nobody's dealing with any of these things in this room. If you are, it's a king. It's a stronghold. It's a place from which Satan launches attacks in your life that keep you from experiencing life to the fullest. We live in a wonderful community in a great place. But we also live in a culture that worships materialism. And maybe one of those strongholds is money, is wealth, is greed, is stuff. If I could just have this next thing, if I could just get there, if I could just get rid of this, this debt, if I could just save so much money, if I could just have this thing. And it's a stronghold where Satan is launching attacks and is keeping you from experiencing peace. Maybe it's ego and pride. And the way that it evidences itself in your life is you're constantly looking for status and recognition. You're so desperately wanting to be recognized and wanting other people to notice you and career advancement, and it's, it's all for this ego and this pride, and, and you yourself are in that centerpiece that's keeping you from experiencing what God has. Maybe it's relationships. There's a relationship that you just, just keeps dragging you down. And if you're married, you're fighting this relationship and, and you need to come to grips with it and say, we need to deal with this because we're not going to have life to the fullest if we're going to keep allowing this to bring us and, and break us apart. you got to deal with that king. you got to deal with the head on. And if you're dealing with that kind of relationship stress and you're not married, get out! Stop wasting your time! It's not worth it. You're going to have enough to deal with as you get married. If you're with somebody who's already causing you that much grief, for goodness sake, find somebody else. Can I get an amen? amen? Yeah. Come on. Life is too good. You don't, that's an, you've got an easy out. When you're married, now you've got to work through that. But these are strongholds. What about these? Lust. Sex. Anger. Fear. Bitterness. Unforgiveness. Something you're holding on to that's been done to you in the past or, or a relationship that you're struggling with. And it just is a stronghold from which Satan keeps launching the attacks in your life. Maybe it's things like seeking pleasure and comfort, laziness, indifference. You're just kind of adrift, and you're not experiencing the fullness of life that God has for you. And maybe you're here, and you're not even sure about this whole church and God and Christ and Jesus and Bible thing. Maybe the stronghold that's in your way is unbelief and doubt and 
That's okay, you begin there, but how do you begin to work through that? How do you push through that? Because on the other side of that is an amazing life. I've dealt with some of these and continue to fight battles. We don't miraculously not fight battles. So how do we deal with this? Look at 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Think about that stronghold that you have named. What is that king for you? Think about that. It says this, we are human, but we don't wage war with human plans and methods. We use God's mighty weapons, not mere worldly weapons, to what? To knock down the devil's strongholds. With these weapons, we break down every proud argument that keeps people from knowing God. With these weapons, we conquer their rebellious ideas, and we teach them to obey Christ. Look, what he's saying here is, look, it's not a spiritual battle anymore. It's not, I mean, it's not a physical battle anymore about a, a walled city and a king. This is about a devil's stronghold in your life where he's launching attacks. You've got to tear those strongholds down because if you don't, you're not going to experience what God has for you. We have to take out the king. Any of you guys like to play dodgeball? <laughs> it's like, whoa, that was kind of a shift. Woo. Well, we have to take out the king. Now, I, I, I love playing dodgeball. Actually, I kind of, I, I both liked it. I looked forward to it as a kid in, in elementary school, and I also dreaded it, right? It was fun because we got to play, but why did I dread it? Because there was some kid, you know, nine or ten years old, already fully gone through puberty, right, who had like, you know, 15-inch biceps, you know, had the, had the headband on and the wristbands on. And this was really, in, in grade school, the cruel thing about dodgeball, it's really just a way to determine who the alpha males are, right? I mean, that's all it is. It's like those guys love it. They love it. And there's always this unfortunate girl that's hiding in some corner. And then there comes this guy, and he wails the ball, and it goes right at her head. And it's like you can see in slow motion, right? The head goes, and then the hair goes flying back, and he takes her out, right? I mean, it's just like this, 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 this idea of, it's just such unfairness, right? After first service, my wife said, I was that girl. <laughs> but it's almost like two warring factions, right? You've got to take everybody out on either side. You don't win until you have taken out the last king, and some of these players are easy to take out, right? That's an easy, quick thing. And sometimes in our life, we're facing some battles. We can, we can take those out. But the bigger and stronger the king, the harder it is to take out. And like in dodgeball, there was Kurt dancing. Kurt dancing. Kurt the cannon dancing, I'll call him, right? When he stepped up, he struck fear into our opponents. When he stepped up, it was like he had a growl. He was a caged animal, and he's coming out, and not only did he just want to play, he spun around, and then he hurled that ball, right? And at 300 miles an hour, that ball is coming right at you, and he takes you out. And as long as the other team had Kurt dancing, and he was the last guy, they had a chance to win. Because if we don't take out that last king, they can come back. The kings come back, and they launch their attacks, Right? And dodgeball, he catches the ball, and all of a sudden another player comes in. We've got to get serious about these strongholds in our life that are keeping us from experiencing the fullness of what God has for us. We've got to take them out and look at them head on. How do we do that? Well, in that scripture we read, it said we need to take captive these arguments. We need to submit these things to Christ. We need to lean on truth. And we need the power of God's Holy Spirit. Look at Paul, you know, who asked earlier, you know, why do we keep doing this in our sin? I don't have this on the screen for you, but it's in Romans chapter 8, just a couple of different verses, 6, 9, and 12. Here's what Paul's saying. If your sinful nature controls your mind, there is death. But if the Holy Spirit controls your mind, there is life and peace. But you are not controlled 
by your sinful nature. And then he says this, so dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation whatsoever to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Did you hear that? You're under no obligation to do whatsoever to do what the sinful nature urges you to do. For if you keep on following it, you will perish. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you turn from it and its evil deeds, you will live. Life is found on the other side of these battles. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus comes to give us life. We need to take out these strongholds. And what I want to encourage you today as we read here in Joshua, it's take the entire land. Don't leave parts of your life to say, you know what, I'm just not going to deal with that. You can't deal with everything, but what is that next king? Because when you deal with that, you will find rest. Jesus says he is our rest. Take that battle head on. You are not going it alone. God's spirit is with you. God's spirit has given you power. He has already won the war. Now he wants to help you win these battles. And know this, that the greater the kings and the stronghold that you face, the greater God's power is going to shine through you and the greater the story that he wants to write through you. There is another side to this battle, but you've got to be willing to fight it together with God's spirit. And here's the beautiful thing. I want to end with this verse. It's not just about eliminating these strongholds, but Jesus said, I want to be your stronghold. God wants to be our strong tower. Look at this verse in 2 Samuel 22, 1 through 3. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the strength of my salvation, and my stronghold, my high tower, my savior, the one who saves me from violence. We have God with us, fighting battles alongside of us, and and it's peace, and there's rest on the other side. I just want to encourage you today to fight these battles. I want to close. I want us to stand together as we close in worship. And I want you to think through what is this king that you have named, this battle that you are facing that you are fighting Maybe you write that down and you put it on the cross and you say, God, I need your help. I need your spirit to give me power and victory over this. Help me through and fight this battle. Or maybe you light a candle to signify that you need Christ's presence and light in your life to help you through whatever it is that you're dealing with. There's freedom and there's hope and there's rest that's found when we fight the battles and face the kings before us. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, tough topics today difficult things to deal with. And yet, God, I know each and every person here has a battle to fight. And it's different from person to person. So, God, today I just pray for each individual that we would not try to do this alone, but, God, that your spirit would surround us, that you would give us strength, that you would become our strong tower. And no matter what opposition we face, God, that we know that we can be strong and courageous because you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen.